Hello everyone and welcome to Singularity One-on-One. Singularity One-on-One is a podcast feature of Singularity Weblog where you can go and listen to it or download it in full. As you may already know, my name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and as always, I will be the man with the questions. Today, I'm privileged to have Ken Goffman, aka Are You Serious, as my guest on the show. R.U. is a writer, editor, and digital culture iconoclast. He was editor-in-chief of Mondo 2000, the popular and influential cyberpunk magazine of the early 1990s. More recently, he was editor-in-chief of the transhumanist magazine H+. He's also the author and co-author of numerous books, including A User's Guide to the New, to the New Edge, Through Mutations, Counterculture Through the Ages, and Design for Dying, with Dr. Timothy Leary. He's written for Wired, Time Magazine, Esquire, Rolling Stone, and Boing Boing, among many other periodicals. According to his own admission, Aryu has been a musician, audio podcast host, lecturer, and minor irritant. He is soon launching a new website, tentatively titled Accelerator, and he's writing most of an open source history of Mondo 2000 magazine. So after... Uh, this introduction, let me start by saying hi, are you, and welcome to Singularity One-on-One. It's great to have you on the show today. Hi, Socrates. I've been uh, waiting to meet you for thousands of years. <laughs> All right, so let's see how productive uh, we can make our uh, long-awaited meeting, meeting in that case. Um, let's start at the very beginning, uh, thousands of years ago. Um, and maybe you can share with us um, how did you get interested in advanced technology in general and in transhumanism issues in particular? Hmm. Um, well, I wasn't a science fiction freak when I was young, so uh, I, I didn't really start on this path uh, terribly early. Um, in the uh, late 1960s, um, during the blooming of uh, counterculture movement and uh, uh, various uh, social and political changes, um, there was a uh, philosophy uh, carried by uh, some participants in the counterculture uh, that uh, uh, machines uh, and technology could replace most forms of alienating labor and end human scarcity, uh, bringing forth a uh, fairly utopian uh, situation for human beings in which uh, we would be at play uh, in the gardens amongst uh, what uh, one poet, a hippie poet, Richard Brodiger, called the machines of loving grace. And uh, I was, I, I liked that vision uh, because I was young and because it was convenient. Um, so that, uh, you know, I didn't have to uh, base a philosophy on uh, hard human struggle uh, or, or anything uh, bitter or difficult, uh, either from, you know, a Marxist or Randian or, or whatever perspective, um, you know, I could look forward to a uh, future in which uh, both having fun and doing well would uh, would merge together. Um so I mean, it, it uh, has been rather difficult to uh, maintain that position over over the long years. Um, I, I think it's uh, become much more complex than that. But um, what you found was, uh, um, well, I joined a group called the Yippies, 
Youth International Party in the early 1970s, a political sort of arm of the counterculture. And uh, they started something called phone freaking, um, or, or they took phone freaking under their uh, bosom or, or, you know, created a relationship with it. And uh, they, they started a magazine called TAP, T-A-P, uh, which is about phone freaking and uh, ripping off uh, corporate credit cards and uh, for telephone calls specifically. Um, and uh, the hacker movement grew out of that. Um, and then, I mean, throughout the 70s, there was uh, an an element or an arm of the counterculture that was very sort of sci-fi, uh, very techno- technologically oriented. Um, and I kind of uh, followed along that area of intrigue um, until it became uh, rather specific with uh, the space colony movement of the 1970s in which uh, Stuart Brand, who had uh, been part of a group called the Merry Pranksters, uh, a bunch of people running around in a bus taking LSD and filming themselves in the mid-1960s. As Stuart Brand, uh, Timothy Leary, of course, a uh, very well-known uh, psychedelic uh, spokesperson, and uh, William S. Burroughs, the, um, the, the more, most corrosive of the uh, beat writers, uh, all became part of this uh, movement to uh, uh, form space colonies and... Uh, uh, Leary and Burroughs in particular adopting various sort of post-human points of view um, which uh, led into uh, reading a little bit of science fiction uh, mostly sort of the dark paranoid stuff like uh, Philip K. Dick but uh, still containing a lot of interesting ideas Um, uh, I was was enough uh, influenced by all of this to uh, decide to move to from uh, Rochester, New York to Berkeley, California, um, under the uh, uh, belief that uh, what was happening was happening on the West Coast of the United States of America, um, and the uh, computer revolution was just starting to gear up, and uh, NASA was out here, all of the the space types were out here, uh, a lot of the more experimental uh, scientists, physicists were out here, everybody was out here. So I actually came out here with the explicit intention of starting a uh, magazine uh, that would take um, ideas from uh, new technology, uh, what we called high tech back then. That was a, a popular phrase that, that isn't so common anymore, but uh, uh, take new technology and science and uh, marry it in with uh, some of the uh, concerns of psychedelic culture and counterculture and, and create a magazine out, out of that to reflect uh, to reflect this thing, uh, which I did find to be happening to uh, uh, quite a, an extent uh, when I did get out here. So at what point uh, did you uh, make the connection either implicitly or explicitly with transhumanism? Uh, because those are a number of sort of technological uh, interests, actually a very wide spectrum of them. Uh, and mm-hmm. at what point did you move to to the sort of cyberpunk and and potentially I don't know extropian or or and tra- transhumanist uh, um, idea? Well, uh, sometime around I think it was uh, 1974, an article appeared uh, about uh, Timothy Leary having just gotten out of jail in a rock and roll magazine called Crawdaddy. And in that article, he advocated something called Smile, 
SMI squared LE, and that was space migration, intelligence increase, and life extension. Um, and um, despite uh, or, or much of the consternation of the uh, sort of uh, uh, punk rocker types that I was hanging out with, uh, early punk rock, New York City style, um, this resonated with me. Um, so in some sense, that started right there. Um, I, I proceeded to uh, read uh, all of his future history series as it uh, as it came out, which uh, dealt into some of these ideas and some ideas about how technology uh, could open up uh, uh, circuits in the brain uh, that uh, uh, human neurology somehow corresponded to the advance of technology and so forth. So um, there was all that. Um, I don't think. I did read FMS Fondieri uh, very close to that time. Um, I don't remember how I bumped into him, but I read his book, uh, his books. I think one was called Telespheres. Um, I can't remember the names of the others, but uh, they were all uh, influences on what would eventually become transhumanism. Uh, there was an Alan Harrington book, The Immortalist, which I, which I read. And uh, sometime in the late 70s, Dirk Pearson and Sandy Shaw uh, inveterate uh, 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 vitamin nutrient and drug experimenters uh, released their life extension handbook. So all of that kind of came together into a uh, rich stew for, for my imagination. So um, I don't recall people calling themselves transhumanists. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't remember when that uh, phrase or, or that uh, term became familiar to me. So, so that I don't know. Well, let me see uh, if I can connect this uh, at a little bit more personal level to, to you. Um, was that also about the same time that you decide to change your name from Ken Goffman to Are You Serious? And I'm trying to, to establish if there is any connection between the things you were going through uh, ideologically, sort of existentially, and the environment that you were part of uh, and sort of the changes that you decided to do with yourself and uh, resulting, I, I guess, with the change of your name. Yeah, well, um, actually, I was starting uh, the first version of the magazine that uh, would eventually become Monda 2000, which is called High Frontiers, uh, based on uh, Gerard K. O'Neill's uh, concept of space colonies that was popular in the 1970s, but also uh, implicitly... Uh, uh, referencing High Times magazine, which is about psychedelics and smoking loads of pot. Um, so, you know, there's a kind of, kind of both those things together. Um, and are you serious? R period, U period, S-I-R-I-U-S really just came as a sort of quip, you know, just came to the top of my mind. There was nothing serious about it. There's this wonderful writer who was an associate of Timothy Leary's, Robert Anton Wilson, uh, who wrote a book, uh, wrote several books, but wrote one called Cosmic Trigger, in which he talked about uh, various occult figures having uh, contact or, or presumed contact. Uh, Robert is an agnostic, so he doesn't assume it to be true, but uh, he wrote amusingly about uh, uh, people having contact with beings from the Dog Star series. So um, I just popped up with the name. I guess, I mean, it's an open invitation to alien contact as I'm asking the question, and if they want to, here I am, they can they can reply yes in a convincing manner at uh, any time. So far, so far, no word from anybody. So it, could also, 
it could also be interpreted as a sort of theistic question about God. Are you serious? And here I yeah. am, you can show or demonstrate yourself in front of me at any moment. But let me ask you, uh, do the R and U stand for anything in, in that part? Are you serious? No, well, I never did. But I, in an uh, interview for uh, a website dedicated to Alan Moore, uh, who did Watchmen, etc., etc., I, I said it was Re Reginald Ubermensch. And of course, uh, my uh, devotion to Elton John, I guess, I don't know, but uh, <laughs> his first name was Reginald. Not really. I have no devotion to Elton John. <laughs> Although Benny and the Jets was, was a great song. Anyway. Very interesting. So, so let me see. Okay, so you're going through all those changes. You're going through those very interesting times. You're meeting all those kinds of people. You change your name. Uh, what's the impact or the identity that you develop um, as a result of all this? Um, in other words, what I'm trying to, to find out is, who is Are You Serious then? Are you a writer in your own words? Are you a writer? Are you a philosopher? Are you a musician? Are you a transhumanist? Are you a counterculture or cyberpunk icon? Who are you? Well, I mean, much like the... Uh the name, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a question waiting to be answered. Uh, I, I try to stay away from uh, getting boxed in by any particular label. I do uh, make my livelihood primarily as a writer and an editor and occasionally as a public speaker, which uh, is something I actually probably enjoy most of all, but don't get as much opportunity to do. Um, so, I mean, that's part of the identity. I'm, very early on, when I took the name, it, uh, it was a period of uh, incredible uh, fun and playfulness and, and you know there were hippies and yippies we were quippies um, it was it was it was a time of really just uh, messing with people's heads in a very uh, fun and gentle way and uh, that became the identity of are you serious uh, towards the middle of the 90s after the break of Monda 2000 the are you serious character uh, uh, darkened a little bit and uh, became perhaps a, a cross between uh, the Marquis de Sade and Timothy Leary or something like that, and uh, went through, uh, wrote a book, uh, How to Mutate and take, of the take Over the World, which in some ways reflects uh, that darkness, but also uh, continuing to be a prankster in, in all aspects, um, and uh, uh, put together an album with a band called Mondo Vanilli, um, which is just going to get released um, next week. It was done in 1993, um, but uh, because of complications uh, with the record label, it never came out. So uh, that reflected that period. Um, sometime in the late 90s, you know, uh, my friends started calling me Ken Goffman. And so uh, Are You Serious it sort of became this uh, character that I use in, in public uh, that I'm identified with as a writer uh, and a speaker, uh, but became less of... Uh, uh, personal identity. I mean, for for a while, I got lost in, in Are You Serious? Mm -hmm. I was Are You Serious? So, so uh, what is the motivation behind uh, your public uh, speaking, your, your writing, your music? Uh, is it, w what's the motivation behind it? 
Um, well, I mean, there are, there are multiple motivations behind everything I do. I mean, first of all, you know, I have to make a livelihood. So I have to, uh, you know, I have to sell what I can to uh, someone who will uh, pay for it. And so that is part of the motivation. I mean, other than that, um, it's really to um, try to bring about a, a lively discourse and to abuse people um, and to... Uh, explore ideas that I find interesting um, not in, to a great extent it's not to uh, uh, advocate causes uh, so much as it is to explore uh, what the possibilities are and how we think about things occasionally I go on a uh, political rampage for a little while and uh, you know I'll try to become an, an advocate um, I formed uh, something called the Revolution Party uh, in 1999 and ran a write-in candidacy for president um, and uh, put together a 15-point platform for how to transform America, which was a combination of liberal and libertarian ideas uh, that people liked quite a bit, actually. Um, and recently I, I put out a message uh, uh suggesting that people form an open source party, uh, which became the International Open Source Party, which uh, mostly isn't me. It's it's not uh, something that I feel extremely prepared to uh, to uh, speak about, um, other than sort of the, the vague idea uh, that uh, uh, politics should be uh, transparent. I just lost you there. Okay, yeah, politics should be, uh, you know, transparent, uh, that... Uh, there should be some type of uh, democratized participation and uh, that uh, in general that uh, we are moving towards a world in which the um, main types of activity, the main uh, economic and social value uh, will probably or will hopefully be uh, what I call voluntary collaborationism. Uh, so that uh, rather than uh, most people's activities being motivated by profit or being motivated by the coercion of the state, uh, uh, most activities will be motivated by an, uh, a desire uh, within people to uh, be part of a uh, process that brings, you know, uh, with a group of people uh, where, where they create something or, or make something interesting or valuable or fun or whatever. Part of the reason uh, why I asked this question was because you've been associated for a very long time with the, uh, the, the counterculture of the 80s and the 90s. Um, and I was trying to just figure out if the counterculture or being a sort of a contrarian is, is the motivation and the starting point or if that's the effect that you end up with. <laughs> yeah, um, probably a little of both. Um... And one of the things is whenever I become sort of part of a uh, group or a way of thinking, um, I have to start experiencing doubt about uh, uh, some aspects of that way of thinking, or I have to have moments where I see how this can be ridiculed. Um, I think it was Mark Twain who said that whenever I find myself on the side of the majority, I find it is time to stop and reflect. Yeah, I agree with that uh, 100, 100%. But I mean, even like, you know, uh, I was very much influenced by Timothy Leary. I immediately started making some fun of Timothy Leary, um, which he seemed to appreciate. Um, 
you know, and, and so forth. So yeah, I have this this sense that I mean, the way most people present themselves in public is that they have this idea, and this is who they are. And when they wake up in the morning, and when they go to sleep at night, and for all the uh, 14, 16 hours, 17 hours that they're awake during the day, this is who they are. And I doubt that. Um, maybe it's true for them. And if it's true for them, I, I find it strange personally. So I'm a lot of different peoples during the day. Um, and, you know, particularly, you know, when I go to sleep at night and wake up in the morning, I, I doubt everything. Um, and, you know, I'm sort of in, in some ways a, a blank slate, a slightly nihilistic blank, blank slate. Um, and then from there, uh, because I need to act, because there's stuff to do, um, you know, I can begin to uh, conjure up stuff that's worth uh, trying to uh uh, illuminate or, or question or, or whatever. So uh, um, anyway, that's that's part of my uh, personality. That's very interesting because I recently interviewed Max Moore, uh, who is another uh, very notable extropian and transhumanist, and, and his uh, single message at the end of our interview was question everything. Yeah, I'm with uh, Max on that. <laughs> okay, so... so Let's try and see if we can connect your own identity, however uh, fluid it may be, to the general sort of counterculture stream of the 80s and the 90s. So perhaps it's best to start first with uh, what is counterculture anyway? Is there such uh, well, a thing as counterculture? You know, I don't know if there is such a thing as counterculture anymore because uh, I don't think, I mean, counterculture has to exist in contrast with the mainstream culture and uh, things have changed so fast and uh, sort of the uh, rules for uh, behavior, uh, the, the ideologies behind uh, uh, at least most of Western culture have become very uh, uh, hard to pin down themselves. I mean, so, so we're in a situation, you know, what does a sort of postmodern situation with uh, uh, Western society and, and Western culture, in, in which there's no grounding uh, from which to, within which to find a mainstream against which to uh, rebel against, except perhaps the uh, value of money. Um, that would be uh, something that uh, uh, pretty much has to be recognized by everybody as a, a survival mechanism. Uh, but um, I, I think that uh, we wrote. A, I wrote a book after Dan Joy called Counterculture Through the Ages, from Abraham to Acid House, and uh, we defined countercultures as uh, uh, cultures that, uh, in a, in a meaningful and way, uh, transgress the norms of uh, whatever the culture is of their times, um, and we define them as anti-authoritarian cultures that are also antic, that are playful, that have a, 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 a certain sense that it can be fun to be a little bit uh, subversive. Um, and uh, uh, so that's, that's kind of, and, and that definition of counterculture can easily be challenged. Um, I mean, it, we chose, Dan Joy and myself, my co-author, chose to uh, define counterculture in terms of how uh, 
Westerners perceived counterculture at that point in time, which is something that uh, they associated with uh, a beatnik movement, a hippie movement, punk movement, and all these anti-authoritarian cultures. Um, now, if you want to literally take, take the uh, term counterculture very literal and just say that it's counter to the prevailing culture of that time, as I wrote in the book, um, there uh, was a fundamentalist Christian group who, when I actually did a Google search for counterculture, when I was uh, writing the book, the first thing that came up was a Christian, a, uh, a uh, fundamentalist Christian group who considered themselves counterculture because uh, the mainstream culture, um, you know, supported, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, uh, did not support their va values, allowed abortion, allowed uh, free speech, uh, allowed yeah, all kinds of... Uh, vulgar expressions of sexuality and so forth, all these things that they oppose. So from their point of view, they were a counterculture. And that can be, uh, that can also be a valid way of, uh, of looking at the, the word. Mm -hmm. So we're about in that real or imaginary counterculture. Does transhumanism fit? I'm not sure that it does. Um, I mean, first of all, as I said, uh, I'm not sure if we have countercultures today. I mean, I, I think there are elements of transhumanism that are uh, very mainstream. I think uh, Forbes magazine has now uh, started a column that is largely transhumanist. Uh, I think it uh, fits in with the desires of uh, a lot of people who are in the uh, business community, which maybe mainstream, however we define mainstream, again, it's, it's hard to locate a mainstream. Um, you know, there are uh, television shows, news programs, uh, you know, speak uh, very approvingly of uh, the, these future potentials, uh, whereas um, most hippies are probably very suspicious of it. Um, but, I mean, there are, there are a lot of various elements within transhumanism, and, uh, you know, there are a lot of people who are influenced by uh, those countercultural times. Uh, there are people who are influenced by psych psychedelic experience. Um, there are, uh, you know, your anarchists. I think, I mean, in some ways, the idea of open source um, the idea of uh, um, everything, you know, making everything transparent and uh, trying to engage people, as I said before, in projects on a voluntary basis uh, because they're fun, because, you know, that this merger of play with work, I think, is a, sign of, a sort of countercultural trope that uh, is very lively in, in some sense. Uh, you know, the citizen scientist arm of uh, of uh, transhumanism or the uh, uh, the uh, bio the the what's the word I'm looking for the uh, uh, DIY bio uh, movement might be seen as a very countercultural thing and it doesn't matter what the people behave like they don't have to behave you know like like hipsters or whatever uh, what's counterculture is um, uh, you know DIY with technology, which was really a good uh, definition of what cyberpunk was. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you've kind of preempted my next couple of questions, so let me just backtrack a bit and then see if I can bring it back. Um, so let's just start with, with your definition of uh, what transhumanism is, perhaps the best starting point. Um, well, I, I take it, uh, I think the way it's meant, which is um, human enhancement, uh, through technology and science, uh, being able to do things uh, that uh, 
we were not able to do, uh, you know, in our original bio biological model, um, and not just say get a pair of glasses to allow ourselves to see normally, but things that actually, uh, you know, uh, uh, expand what uh, was possible for a human being before. So I mean, if my if I had X-ray specs, you know, if my glasses could uh, see through the wall, it would be a uh, transhumanist technology by uh, today's standards. Like Molly, for example, from Neuromancer, uh, she right. had those right. uh, goggles uh, surgically embedded in her eyes where she could see in the dark and so on and so on. Right. So uh, when you see people getting prosthetic legs that allow them to yeah. uh, run faster than most people, that would be the a, cheetah uh, leg. a uh, transhumanist uh, Enhancement. So, I mean, and, and expands out to all the favored tropes that are uh, spoken of by most uh, mm -hmm. transhumanists of uh, expanded lifespan, of, uh, more importantly, of expanded health span, of uh, greater intelligence, whether that's uh, uh, achieved with our own equipment or with some interaction with uh, artificial intelligence, mm -hmm. so general artificial intelligence, what, what have you, you know, etc. Et so, uh, so that's what I... That's what I accept its meaning to be. So in that sense, uh, let's go back to your previous point. Uh, you do seem to be thinking that transhumanism is kind of coming mainstream, say, in, in the first decade of, 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 of the 21st century. And, and, yeah. and that seems to be kind of rather different than the, than the situation in, say, late 80s or early 90s. Yeah, I mean, I think it was pretty... Uh, these ideas were, were pretty obscure in the 80s and 90s, and, and they were associated largely with uh, cyberpunk, I think, in the public imagination. I mean, if, if you uh, went around like I did, I toured the uh, country on the United States on behalf of the book A User's Guide to the New Edge, and, you know, if I would go on uh, radio or TV or whatever, mostly they would be familiar th with these ideas. This was pre-Wired pre magazine. They, they were familiar with these ideas if uh, uh, they were in touch with science fiction culture, if they were in touch with uh, cyberpunk, and then uh, if they were in touch with, uh, with learning about some developments that were taking place in actuality. Um, but I, yeah, it was pretty pretty obscure. I mean, Eric Drexler's ideas were, were going around about the nanotechnology within uh, uh, some sectors of the scientific community. People who read science mag, pop science magazines, may have heard a little bit about it. Uh, but I, I I think you just you just see more of it and you hear more more about it um, today in uh, mass media. You find more people familiar with these ideas and uh, comfortable with it or uncomfortable with it but uh, with, with a with a sense that uh, there's an inevitability uh, that uh, some of these things will happen that some some of these things are plausible and Barbara Walters had a uh, special on uh, will you live to be I can't remember 150 or whatever so normatively speaking do you think that's a that's a positive development uh, a negative development do you think that something's being lost uh, uh, in that sort of coming up in the open, uh, or, or do you think so, uh, something is being gained? Well, no, I think, uh, you know, any time you have information and ideas spreading 
and being made more accessible to more people, you know, however, however those people choose to access those ideas, whether it's through a uh, television show or uh, through the net or whatever, um, that's on the whole a, a very good thing. Um, you know, it's a good thing for uh, people to learn about and be thinking about and uh, uh, can only be helpful, I think, I mean, in terms of, uh, you know, not having it be our special little subculture. Um, I, I never really cared for, for that kind of thinking, you know, all the people who were like part of punk who became upset when their bands became popular or whatever. I, I, I never interested in me. Um, you know, I, I think that if people want to do something different with the ideas of transhumanism, you want to do something non-mainstream with it, want to do art that's not mainstream with it, want to do advocacy that's not mainstream with it, or against it for that matter, they have every opportunity to do that. Um, uh, so that the, so the fact that these ideas are spreading and being discussed, uh, you know, in, in a mainstream context shouldn't, shouldn't have any impact on that. You know, uh, it's been a few years since I read uh, William Gibson's uh, classic Neuromancer. Yeah, but me too. In the last uh, week or so, I actually decided to take some mental time off, and I went and read the, the second and the third part of the trilogy, Count Zero and Mona Lisa Overdrive. Right. And uh, one of the things that sort of came back to me uh, was the, the sort of dark prevalence of, of all kinds of drugs throughout his books and and his heroes generally all of them using all kinds of different drugs so let me ask you uh, first of all how much do you think that William Gibson's Neuromancer uh, sort of inspired the, the cyberpunk culture of the 80s and the 90s and then the, the second issue is uh, what do you think is the relationship between psychedelic drugs and transhumanism and should there be one? Okay, well, I mean, Gibson, I think, was reflecting a culture that was already around him. Uh -huh. uh, when he wrote Neuromancer, I think he uh, was quoted as saying he uh, went into a uh, uh, some kind of a place where uh, a lot of kids were playing video games while listening to their Walkmans through headphones. And just from that s small image of all these young people sort of being absorbed in a, a sort of very raw virtual world, he can imagine young people being absorbed in a much more elaborate, uh, you know, construct, cyber, cyberspace and so forth. And, I mean, you know, youth culture and young adult culture in the 1980s was a drug culture, perhaps uh, to, to a certain extent it's, it still is. So, um, you know, he was just re reflecting that and reflecting the idea that, uh, um, you know, there there was sort of the official corporate culture, and then there's the culture in which most young people participate, which is, you know, drugs and nightclubs and, uh, uh, you know, sort of on uh, somewhere on the uh, border border or boundary between uh, outlawdom or criminality and uh, normal life and so forth. So he was reflecting those things. I think, I mean, Neuromancer and that trilogy influenced a lot of inventors, which uh, sort of confounded Gibson, because he had written a fairly dark series of novels, but, uh, you know, a lot of virtual reality inventors came up to him and said, well, thank you so much, you know, I'm, I'm inventing the world you imagined. Um, and Gibson, I, Gibson was very clear that uh, he didn't think his novels were dystopian, but uh, nor did he think they were utopian. 
but uh, he was intrigued that the people, technology people, were really influenced by it. Um, the hacker culture, I mean, a, a hacker culture existed all along. You know, people were writing the software and also the the, the uh, crackers, the people sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, breaking into systems or whatever. Those cultures existed all along. Uh, the self-image of the people who were involved in that uh, was probably mutated by uh, cyberpunk um, so that, uh, you know, you could be a cool geek with a leather leather jacket and mirror shades or whatever and you know that started to infect um, um, music culture and club culture and all that um, so it was kind of more of a give and take between uh, the visions of uh, uh, William Gibson and uh, also to some extent Bruce Sterling and uh, John Shirley and a few other people and the uh, fact that uh, you know sort of hipster club cultures and uh, hacker cultures already existed and continued to exist. Now, with, with transhumanism, um, I think I mean, the, the theme uh, is enhancement. And with psychedelic drugs, the theme uh, is brain enhancement or perhaps life enhancement in the sense that uh, if, if you uh, theoretically or I think realistically, if you use these things well and don't overuse them and know what you're doing, um, you can... Uh, bring about uh, uh, states within yourself that are a little bit more flexible and uh, you can find yourself enjoying life a little bit more. Also, a, a number of people have uh, reported using uh, small doses of psychedelics, particularly LSD, as a uh, um, brain enhancement drug in, in, in a, even in a linear, linear sense, uh, be more alert, uh, sort of uh, taking what... Uh, we get from stimulants, but it uh, uh, seems to give a little bit of a, a spin, a, a little bit of, a, adds a little bit of creativity to uh, that punch. Um, so, let's see. I'm losing you. Are you seeing me? Uh, I'm seeing you. I mean, okay. there, there were a couple of interruptions, but but overall, it's it's not too bad, I think. Okay. Um, so, um, I think it's a. I'm not sure how exactly it works. Uh, James Kent, who uh, was the neuro uh, columnist for H Plus Magazine, has written a book about uh, uh, how psychedelics work in the brain uh, called Psychedelic Information Theory. People can look that up if they're curious and uh, maybe learn a little bit about what the current science is uh, with how these things work effectively. Now, of course, they all work differently. Psilocybin and LSD have different uh, effects, but I think something is going on there with pattern recognition. Uh, enhanced pattern recognition sometimes and distorted pattern, pattern recognition sometimes. I think that they, they seem to come together. So, I mean, uh, so you can, you can get enhancement or you can get uh, distortion in which you think you were, you know, the, the queen of Atlantis uh, or whatever. So, so do you think that in that sense, uh, uh, designer drugs or so-called smart drugs uh, would inevitably uh, be a part of the sort of transhumanist future? Um, well, we, we don't really know. I, I mean, people are... Uh, should they be? Do you think they should be also? Like, well, I mean, they... So they those are two questions. They should be if we don't have something better. I mean, there's tra transmagnetic cranial stimulation 
Um, there's a possibility of photonic implants in the brain uh, so that uh, we may, in the ingestion of a chemical through the, uh, you know, having it go into the stomach and then uh, fan out from there is, is pretty sloppy. Of course, there'd be more precision, precision drugs um, targeted to, uh, to the brain and so forth. So that, that might happen. But I, I, I think some sort of outside agent uh, acting on the brain to uh, speed it up a little bit um, to uh, uh, be able to uh, uh, understand and integrate and see patterns in uh, larger quantities of information uh, is probably something that uh, will be uh, necessary for human beings. Now, of course, the uh, the singularity narrative, the singularitarian narrative, is uh, um, that uh, you you could uh, design artificial intelligences. You know, uh, um, you, know you could basically uh, reformat the brain outside of the brain, and uh, uh, and then uh, you know, Kurzweil certainly his his view is that. Uh, we would unite with these things and, and have them in, in ourselves, and uh, we probably wouldn't require any uh, drugs at this point. I mean, we might like psychedelic drugs still to get high, but uh, uh, as far as intelligence goes, we uh, might not require drugs or, or other kinds of interventions. You have this uncanny ability to sort of preempt the flow of my questions. Because uh, the next question I was gonna, I was just about to ask was uh, about your take on the singularity uh, as a concept, uh, and perhaps uh, you could elaborate even a little more on Ray Kurzweil's uh, specific take on the singularity as sort of the the most popular mainstream uh, singularitarian. Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, I have to say that. Um, uh, I accept the idea of the singularity as it was initially intended by uh, Werner Vinge, uh, which is, uh, you know, some people will talk, say, well, uh, it's going to be a nanotechnology, a nano singularity, not an AI singularity. Or uh, I know somebody who I interviewed uh, uh, for my upcoming website who says it's going to be a social singularity uh, that, uh, you know, kind of a Borg-like ultimate uh, place of arrival that our, our social connections have been increasing at uh, at our actually faster than Moore's law uh, so there'll be a social singularity but I accept that it's uh, uh, you know artificial intelligence is what we're talking about when we talk about the singularity and as someone who's not an expert in that area I accept that I uh, I can't really make meaningful predictions or, or uh, say whether this is uh, these views there or whether this will will happen or not um, but I mean I'm, I'm intrigued by it I certainly uh, enjoyed reading Kurzweil's uh, version of it and uh, um, I, it seems like the doubling of, uh, of information processing is continuing apace um, so I you know I, I'm intrigued by it I think it's uh, but uh, how likely a fair, fairly hopeful uh, scenario how likely do you think that, in your view, that, that something like that could materialize in the next several decades, as Kurzweil has predicted, or you ever know, I can, for that purpose? Yeah, yeah I, can, I can only uh, go by my own intuition. Uh, 
and that intuition is that it probably will happen um, and probably take longer than uh, uh, optimists expect. Uh, I have this uh, slogan that I adopted during the Monday 2000 days um, after uh, uh, dealing with uh, very uh, um, optimistic predictions by people like Timothy Leary and Arthur C. Clarke where I said everything takes twice as long as you expect it to after you've already taken that into account. Okay, so so in that case, uh, what do you think is our chance to survive any such potential technological singularity as a species, humanity in general it is? You know, I, it's an interesting question. Um, for, a, for a long time, I thought that people who were uh, paranoid, if you will, about uh, the bots coming and uh, sort of killing us off or, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, winding up having uh, a, an unpleasant uh, response to us, uh, I, I didn't, didn't feel realistic to me. I can only uh, comment on this on the basis of intuition, but uh, um, if felt to me as if, uh, you know, in this process of evolving uh, forward-looking technologies, technologies that help us to uh, survive and live well and to uh, find new ways of uh, gathering resources without uh, doing too much damage to the home planet, uh, that these things would resolve themselves. Uh, but I do think now um, that... Uh, another uh, intelligence that uh, might exist outside ourselves, you know, if they find themselves stuck on Earth, which is another question, they, they may not find themselves stuck on Earth, they find themselves stuck on Earth, they might look at us and say, you guys are just too toxic. We're, we're, <laughs> we're, we're not going to be able to survive with the with you guys around, you know, answering answering your uh, needs and desires. Um, so, um, so what, no, do you least, think, what do you think is the chance of, of that happening? Mathematically I, I, speaking, you know, like more than 50%, less than 50%? I think it's, it's less than 50% because I think that uh, uh, probably by the time uh, we, we get this dramatic uh, uh, event in, in artificial intelligence, we will also have uh, figured out how to utilize um, molecular technology and we'll have you know, we'll, we'll have figured out how to uh, gather natural energy and we'll have figured out how to, uh, how to uh, have the, get our resources without, uh, you know, continuing to uh, ravage the home planet. And we may also have figured out how to uh, start moving people out uh, off of planet Earth. So I think it's, you know, it's relatively small and really depends on the uh, timing of a lot of developments and, and, what happens first? Are you? We're uh, approaching uh, uh, the end of our interview today, so I'd like to ask you the two uh, traditional questions that I ask of all my guests. Uh, first of all, uh, what is the best place that our viewers and listeners can go and uh, find more information about yourself and the work that you do? Well, I mean, right now I don't have a personal website. Um, so I, I, I can't really recommend anything more than uh, going on Google and uh, 
putting in R period, U period, S I R I U S, and uh, ignore the guy who uh, who uh, answers questions on Huffington Post. That's not me. That's some other person uh, posing as Are You Serious? An I mean, you, can find, you can you can find oh yeah, an imposter. Exactly. There are a few of them around. <laughs> um, you know, I guess I have no more uh, entitlement to uh, own my name than you know. Bob Jones or, or whomever, um, but um, I mean you can find a lot of my more recent writing at H Plus Magazine, HPlusMagazine.com. Um, there's a site called Ten Zen Monkeys, uh, which is the numeral Ten Zen Monkeys.com that uh, has a lot of uh, fairly recent stuff uh, by me. There's a uh, Wikipedia page about me, which uh, is uh, generally accurate. Although it, uh, there's a lot of people questioning whether I actually exist on there or whatever. Um, of course, there's no proof. Uh, but um, that's about all I can offer right now. I don't have they can people can send me email if they're uh, interested in communicating with me personally, and I would prefer if that comes to uh, the address Sirioso S I R I O S O at yahoo.com. Excellent and. Uh if there is one message, a single message that you would like our listeners and viewers to take away from this interview with you, what you what would you like it to be? I'm afraid Max Moore already uh, stole my uh, message. <laughs> question, question everything, absolutely. Question everything, every day. Absolutely, then. Uh, would you like to elaborate a little more on that or... Well, I have a uh, an article right now on H Plus Magazine, which, uh, if I recall correctly, is question the authority of your brain, um, and I think it's a, a fundamental question that uh, some people uh, seem to find banal, and I find uh, uh, completely poignant and important, uh, which is. Uh, uh, the equipment that we have to understand the world in reality is just uh, our brain um, and, you know, to some extent our body and the, and the environment and, and the cultural heritage that uh, within which it exists and the tools of measurement that we've, we've uh, invented. Um, and it's presumed that this uh, brain and this equipment is a biological accident. It may or may not be. Um, so that everything that uh, we understand and everything that we measure uh, by using our brain uh, is only uh, as good as the quality of the uh, hardware and software that uh, uh, nature, if you will, has, uh, has uh, allowed us to uh, grow into. That's fascinating. So on this note... Uh, I would like to thank Are You Serious for taking his time to be here with us today on Singularity One-on-One. Thank you, Are You. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun.